I love that line in that song, there to my heart is the blood applied. It's, um, yeah, just need to uh, take that in and think about what God is doing to me. It's what he's done for me. It's applying something that I couldn't do myself. Let's just take a moment to thank God and ask him to speak to us as we open his word today. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. We're each one here this morning because you've called us, you've chosen us, and uh, you've given us hope. It's a gift. We thank you for it. It's not in doubt that we're looking forward to our salvation and and the day that you return and and, uh, you start to restore this place. And uh, we thank you for the part that we have to play in it. And we ask that today as we open your word, you might just help us to understand our role and what we can do and uh, try to get our heads around what it is this, this world is, is doing and how we can make it better. We ask for your help today to understand these things and apply them in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week I kicked off this new st- series called The Restoration Begins, or The Restoration, um, because it's already begun. What Jesus finished when he rose from the dead, he kicked off this what I believe is this restoration of the kingdom of God. And uh, the idea of this series is to help us as his disciples to understand our role, the role that we play, and not just understand it, but engage in it, so that we'll have some things that we can do and uh, see what we are called to do um, to engage um, in the kingdom work of restoration. Um, So the first series, first message was on um, YouTube. We weren't here the other week. So you can watch that if you want to catch up. You just look up uh, Hawkesbury Community Church and um, you should be able to find it there. You'll see a picture of the Mona Lisa, which is not the actual Mona Lisa. It's my effort at restoring the Mona Lisa. looks like somebody tagged it, but it's... um, as my effort <laughs> and uh, I mean I didn't talk about it in the, the message but the idea is that it's, she's being restored she's you know 520 years old and over that time she's been through a few things in her life she's lost her eyebrows and a lot of the colour's been washed out of her face and so I thought she, it was time she had a makeover and um, to restore some of her natural beauty <laughs> She doesn't look happy, so I'm thinking that's probably why she's not that. Um, I didn't do it justice, obviously. But that's the point, that we're actually involved as Christians in a restoration of something that was beautiful, that was right, that when God described it in his own words as very good, and for God to say that, then it must be pretty good to step back and go, that's very good wasn't too long after that that we stepped in and said well let's make some modifications to it and it started going downhill from there so this is this is what I think we're on about um, God even from that first moment in the garden he, he realized what was going to need to happen to restore it and even he started at the beginning to restore what was broken, the consequences of sin. It was like the flood for me is is not just a a physical image of what was happening, but this flood of consequences. The consequences of sin flooded the earth. 
and it started to destroy everything that was good. And we know what floods are like. We know the mess and the chaos it causes. And so we know what's required to clean them up. We've been involved in that. And God started this clean-up process, cleaning up the mess, um, cleaning up the mud. He paid the price. It's, it's costly. It's costly cleaning up. Paid the price in blood for the mess that was made. He was rescuing people who'd been swept away, clothing people who were naked, feeding the hungry, comforting those who are mourning, and working to restore peace, a restoration process. That's what God's on about. And when I hear that, and, I'm, and I hear about the fact that, yes, we're involved in this process, this is exciting, and I like thinking, what can we do? And then and the reality is, I look at the world and I go, what's happening? The wheels seem to have fallen off. It's, um, I'm not sure if you feel like that, but you know, being part of Team Jesus is like a good thing, but then you're like, well, come on, Jesus, what's happening? It's not happening fast enough. This restoration seems to be taking a long time. And to me, it doesn't look like it's getting better. It looks like it's getting worse. It's like... As a church or churches, we're working on the restoration and we do some things well and we turn around and then someone's tagged, the, tagged what we've done and God's masterpiece is getting messed up. Someone's tagged the Mona Lisa. It's, it's just not like it should be. And that's not all. It's not just that we're involved in this clean-up process. I was at a conference um, a few weeks ago, and the guy was talking about the fact that it's not the world that's making the mess. The world thinks the church is actually to blame for the mess that's being made. And that might take the church a little bit to get their head around and think about, but we think we're the ones going, hey, we've got a solution to the problem. Follow us, and the world's saying, "No, no, hang it, you've got it all wrong. You're not, you're not the solution. You are the problem." Think about that. We think we're doing the good thing, and and the world is saying, "You guys are stuffing it up. You're the ones tagging the masterpiece." Times have changed. This um, guy who was a key speaker named Stephen McAlpine, he wrote a book called "Being the Bad Guys," and he says. The world sees the church as the bad guys. He says that the world has even taken our words and used them against us. Words like freedom, inequality, and love, and joy. We're like, hey, they're our words. They're kingdom-building words. And you're using them to say that we're not giving freedom and we're, we're not showing equality. He says that the world wants the kingdom fruit, but they're not prepared to acknowledge the roots. He says they want the kingdom, but they won't accept the king. And to our shock, the church, we're not the hero in the story. And it's, it's, it's weird because we do feel that we have the answer. We do feel we have the solution. And yet it's been, it's been turned on its head. Instead of throwing uh, bouquets of flowers at the church saying, yeah, good job for cleaning up the mess, they're throwing rotten tomatoes at us. And that's not very nice. 
and it's easy to get frustrated and it's easy to feel like giving up, especially when you're putting your heart and soul into helping clean up the mess, helping people restore lives, helping relationships to be reconnected, helping people get back on their feet. And then all of a sudden, it's turned on its head and you're thinking, what, what happened? What, where did we go wrong? There are two um, processions mentioned in the Gospels. And I think they, for me, they're a good image of what actually is going on for us in life. And hopefully they'll, they'll give us an image of, of what's going on um, and work out the role we have to play in all of this chaos. And the first procession, um, you'll probably remember uh, Matthew 21, uh, Jesus comes strolling into Jerusalem on a donkey and everyone is going nuts. The whole crowd is cheering and they're celebrating and they're throwing bouquets and they're shouting, praise God the son of, for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest. And we're like, yes, that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. Recognition goes to Jesus. But then you think about why they were doing that. What was it that they were celebrating? What were they looking for? They were looking for the fruit of the king to come, which was freedom from oppression of, of Rome. They were actually looking for the Messiah that had been foretold in the Old Testament. This king is coming. The Messiah is coming and it's going to restore Israel back into its rightful place. And so they were looking for the Messiah and that's what they thought was going to happen. And so they loved what Jesus represented, freedom from oppression, but it didn't take long before that didn't happen. And so they turned on him. They wanted the king, they wanted the fruit of the kingdom, but not the king. We know that that image really is about what's to come that Jesus will come and will rule the earth and will set people free from oppression and, and fix the world you know, the way that uh, it should be. Um, but not yet. Jesus is like, no, not yet. The second procession is when Jesus walks out of Jerusalem after being whipped and mocked and crowned of thorns and he's carrying his cross. And he's walking through the crowds of people and they're jeering him and they're mocking him. They're throwing rotten tomatoes at him and they put him on the cross and they're jeering at him. And it says in Matthew 27, uh, verse 39, the people passing by Jesus as he was being crucified shouted abuse. They were shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. And so they rejected the king. They wanted the fruit, not the king. And to me, that, that's our reality. That's the image that is more realistic for the Christian. If you call yourself a Christian and a follower of Jesus, then that's the reality that we should be thinking about in this world, not the first one. The first one's not realistic. People are not going to celebrate us coming in and, and making the world a better place. They're more happy to jeer us and criticise us and mock us and jeer us and say, well, what good are you doing? Look at you now. That's the reality, but that's not the end of the story. The story goes that three days after the crucifixion, Jesus rose from the dead. He showed himself to the disciples and he spent... How long did Jesus spend with the disciples? 40 days. You can go to the top of the class. You get a culture being good or something like that. Thumbs up or I don't know what it's called. Something. You get an um, extra biscuit morning tea. 40 days he spent with them 
40 days, it's over a month, you know, that's a long time to spend with someone. They're pretty clear that this is Jesus. He was teaching them all about the kingdom to come. And they still had this expectation. They were still Israelites. They're still um, looking for this Messiah to come. And so they're questioning when Jesus raised, is, is risen from the dead. is like, is now the time? Are you going to restore the kingdom now? Surely. They've killed you, so they can't do that twice. <laughs> and here we are. We're following you. We're the twelve. And they're like, you know, likening themselves to the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're like, yeah, who's going to sit next to you, Jesus, in the, in the kingdom to come? Is now the time? And actually, that's what they said in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Um, Lord, has the time come for you to free and restore the kingdom? Our kingdom, they said. And Jesus says, no, not yet. But you do have a role to play, he says. You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. You will witness, be my witnesses of the resurrection. And three verses later, Jesus disappears into the clouds and the disciples are standing there with their mouths open. Just put yourself there for that moment. You spent three years following Jesus. You've seen him crucified, raised from the dead. Your hopes are up. Speaking about hope. And you're thinking, this is it. And then he disappears. How would you feel? That's not rhetorical. You can have a crack at that. <laughs> How would you feel if that was happening to you? Go and hide in an upper room like they did. <laughs> Go and hide. <laughs> right. Exactly. You were like, they're coming after us next. Yep. You'd be disappointed. You'd be frustrated. You'd be like, man. We used to run camps for about 10 years. We ran um, a, a youth camp up Mount Victoria. Pete and Kel took over after us and as a long-running thing. We took over from your parents. And it's camp, if you've never been, it's just like, um, like a little glimpse of heaven. Like, everyone's there. We're just having so much fun. There's, it's, um, you know, you're the, the majority, if you know what I mean. In the world, you're not. But at camp, it's just like we're singing Christian songs. We're learning, you know, the word. We're eating together. We're cleaning up. We've got rosters. We've got, and it's so much fun, Kaz, isn't it? And then you go back to work. Yeah, but we call it like a mountaintop experience and it was at Mount Victoria and so we climbed the mountain to go to Mount Victoria and there's some mountaintop experience and the danger of that is that after it finishes everyone just goes back down and, and you feel empty, you feel, oh, why are we back, you know, we're back at square one instead of being celebrated and life's being good, now we're the party poopers and, you know, you're not going out after work and getting drunk with all your mates and you're the, the guy who's weird in the lunchroom. That's what they would have felt. Like, this, this is it. And now what do we do? And that's a great question to ask in terms of what do we do as disciples? Like, Jesus has left. What does that leave us to do? What does Jesus expect them to do? How do we go about restoring what was broken, what was run down, what's been fractured? And the postmodern culture of our day says the church is to blame for the problems. And it's still throwing rotten tomatoes at us. And we're supposed to be making a difference. How do we do that? The answer is, this is the answer. We continue to carry the cross. And you're like, how does that help? <laughs> really, how does that help? 
that is not helpful at all. We continue to carry the cross. We watched a movie. I bought Linda a series of books, uh, five books for Christmas. And uh, what are they called? Outlander. The Outlander series. I don't know if you've seen it. And uh, I won't try and explain it. The scene I was watching yesterday that reminded me of what was going on is this guy's being flogged by a, um, an English uh, something captain. And he says to him, I'm going to break you. And, he, and the guy's getting whipped. He's been, already been whipped a hundred times and he didn't make a noise. And that frustrated the guy. And so he got whipped another hundred times. It's hard to watch. It's, it's not PG. Is it PG? No. <laughs> um, but he doesn't make a sound and he's not broken. And the, the crowd are like, wow. It was an example of resilience, of endurance, perseverance, not giving up. And that itself is what we are called to do not give up. And when you think about the word witness, so Acts chapter 1 verse 6, it talks about, uh, uh, verse 22, it says, whoever's been chosen, so the, the disciples go through after Jesus leaves, and they're like, there's only 11 of us, we should have 12. They select someone to be another witness, someone who'd already been with Jesus the whole time. Witnesses. And the word witness is for us it's just like telling about Jesus it's not in the Greek it's the word is anyone know Nico come on budding theologian here the word witness if you look it up if you google it if you don't believe me uh, Siri it's martyr it means martyr so when they said the word you'll be my witnesses Jesus so you'll be my martyrs you will die for your faith and the disciples did and the world said, either they're nuts, because no one dies for a lie. Why would you? You would just go, we're out of here. No, they kept at it. That perseverance is the thing that made the world go, these guys are serious. And so suffering in the world, when people look at us and we go, we're carrying our cross, they're going to say... These guys are either nuts or there's something about this. So Peter, he, he said, I'm not worthy of, of being crucified like Christ. So I want you to crucify me upside down. And he went through you know, suffering. And he wrote this book um, as it happens, just so it happens, it has his name on it. So we know he wrote the book. It's First Peter. So Peter writes this book, and I'm not going to read the whole of the chapter. First, we'll start at first, verse 12. He says, so First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through, as though something strange was going to happen to you. And that's the what, as Christians, we think like that. We're like, why don't they love us? Peter's like, suffering is, that's the norm for you guys. If it happened to Jesus, that's what you should expect. Instead, you should be very glad for these trials because they make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you'll have a wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed to all the world. So be happy when you're insulted for being a Christian. 
Hmm? Be happy. That's the witness when you're being insulted for being a Christian. Now, even in a Christian school, working in a Christian school, is, is this, the suffering is still there. The jeering and the mocking still comes. The world's not the way it should be. It's all upside down. So if you suffer, verse 19, so if you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, then keep on doing what's right. And trust your lives to God who created you, for he will never fail you. Jump over to verse 5, verse 6. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time he will lift you up in honour. Give all your worries and your cares to God, for he cares about you. Stay alert and watch out for the great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. But stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your Christian brothers and sisters all over the world are going through the same kind of suffering that you are. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support and strengthen you and place you on a firm foundation. That's the situation we're in. That's a bit of a, a weird verse. Um, I didn't read it. Verse 17 talks about the time of judgment. For the time, for the time of judgment has come. It, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who've never obeyed God, God's good news. It sounds when you read that, that the judgment is coming from God, but it's not what this verse is talking about. In, in the context of the whole of Peter, Peter's talking about how suffering actually produces faith. Uh, suffering refines us like gold through a fire. And so he's not saying that God is punishing us. He's saying suffering is part of living in this world. The jeering and the suffering doesn't come from God. It comes from the world and living in the world. And he's saying that that's what makes us partners with Christ because Christ went through that. We will go through that. What he doesn't say is we don't go out and condemn the world. He doesn't say as Christians it's our job to go out and judge everybody else and say, no, you guys have got it wrong. That's not helpful. Judging others for the way they live is not going to re help restore them back to God. Love will. Carrying our cross, being an example to others of how to lay down your life, sacrificially, give of yourself, that's the example that Jesus called us to, to love others as Christ loved us. That's the way we represent Jesus. So that's... Um, Suffering in silence, suffering with a smile on our face is really what it means to be a Christian and continuing to love. Hebrews 12 says, So let's run with endurance the race that God has set before us. It's like we've joined this procession of saints who have suffered ever since God called them, and not just New Testament saints. Right from the beginning, the stories that we've been going through they all suffer. Like Daniel, he's like standing against the man. He's doing the right thing, and yet he's criticised for it and thrown into a lion's den. And you can go story after story in this procession of saints. Um, never give up. So let us run with endurance, the race that God set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. 
because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in a place of honour beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility that he endured from sinful people, and then you won't become weary and give up. I hope that's an encouragement to you as you go out this week. Expect the rotten tomatoes. Expect the jeering. But know that you're not alone. Jesus did this. And by doing that, you are actually being an example of the kingdom. And that is the way that we are restoring the kingdom. It's not a quick fix. But people will see your perseverance. They will see your love. They will see the way that you handle the persecution. If you arc up and punch someone in the face, rethink your approach. (laughs) How dare you? Um, That's not what Jesus did. He endured the suffering. Father, we thank you for Jesus' example. We know we've been called to something that is far too big for us to handle alone. We know this is your work. We know that you've started it and we know that you'll finish it. And we have the privilege of being a part of it in the middle. Help us to understand our role. Help us to endure suffering like Jesus does. And in doing so, help us to be a great example and a witness to you of all the love and the peace and the joy and all the fruit that you bring. May you work through us this week as we go into our our workplaces. Father, we ask that you'll work before us and you'll sow seeds of love into people's lives. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.